So the Gospel of John's focused on presenting Jesus as God the Son, who reveals God the Father. In the first ten chapters of John, Jesus is presented as God the Son, who reveals the Father, by showing who he is. And he does this, he presents himself as, as the Son, by performing a series of what John calls signs. They're miracles, so to speak, but signs. The first one is is that he turns water into wine. We're pretty familiar with that one. The second one is is that he cleanses the temple. The third one is he heals a sick child. Next, he heals a lame man, somebody who doesn't have use of their limbs. The next one is he feeds the multitude. Then the sixth one is he heals a blind man. And then the the sign that we're going to see today is Jesus' seventh sign, his final sign until his resurrection. And what he's going to do in this sign is he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. The sign of raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 presents this final sign. And what we see is this sign also, and these signs, all of them, they include dialogues and teaching. So Jesus isn't just performing these signs and then leaving his audience wondering what they mean. He talks with people about what these things mean. He dialogues with them. He has direct teaching on them. He has several statements about what they mean within them. But as he's having these dialogues with these people, what we're going to see is that there's often confusion with the people that he's talking to as he's performing these signs. So we're probably fairly familiar with the Gospel of John. Think about his conversation with Nicodemus. Right? Nicodemus is wondering when Jesus says, you must be born again to receive the kingdom. He's like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born again? Can I go again into my mother's womb? Right, when he's talking in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, right, and he says that, that he has living water, and he's talking to her about this living water that he has, and she's confused about, well, what is this living water? Should we worship here, or should we worship there in Samaria or in Jerusalem? There's confusion within these conversations. So we see the same confusion happening in John chapter 8, where, where the crowds, they seem to think that, that they understand what Jesus is saying when he says that they need to be that they're, that they're enslaved, and he's talking about slavery to sin. And the crowds, they think that he's just talking about common slavery, right? When he says, you all are enslaved, and they say, no, we're sons of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Well, the crowds are wrong. They have a whole history of slavery. They were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves to Assyria. They were slaves to Babylon. They were slaves to Persia. They were slaves to Greece, and currently they're enslaved to Rome. So the crowds are completely confused when Jesus is talking to them, and he's talking about slavery from sin. So we're about to encounter another one of these episodes where Jesus is going to perform a sign that reveals and declares who he is, and he's going to have some teaching along with this sign. So this brings me to our first big idea. In our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus reveals the glory of the Father by resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. An act that will also bring glory to Jesus. So just to repeat that again, Jesus reveals the glory of the Father by resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. This act of resurrecting Lazarus from the dead will also bring glory to Jesus himself. But before we look at this text, I want to mention a few texts in John that are talking about this concept of resurrection. Jesus has been leading up to this point of the resurrection of Lazarus and then finally his resurrection. So I want to talk about a couple of texts in the Gospel of John that hit on this idea. He alludes to his own resurrection in John chapter 2 when he cleanses the temple, that second sign. 
when he talks about when you tear the, when, when this, when this temple is torn down three days later, I will raise it up again. John leaves a little comment that he's talking about his own body, that Jesus is talking about his own resurrection there. In John chapter five, Jesus is teaching to the people one of those truly, truly statements. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son of man can do nothing of his own accord. And Jesus is talking about how he can only do what the father does. And that the father loves the son and the father and the son are doing the same work. And he's talking, he's going to tell them how he's going to do greater works than the works that they've seen so far, than the healing of sick people, right? He's going to do greater things than this. And when he says that he's going to do those greater things, this is what he says. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. He goes on and he talks about how if one believes in him, they will have eternal life. And then he says, he does not come into judgment, the person who believes in him, but passes from death to life. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So in John 5, that's what Jesus says. And you can think that John's audience, right, Jesus' audience and John's gospel readers, when they see Jesus talking to Lazarus in the tomb in our text today, that they're supposed to think of this text in John chapter 5. When, when you hear the voice of the Son, the dead will raise. They're supposed to think of that text. So he talks about how the Son, how God has given the, the Son authority to execute judgment. So, right, so the, those who believe in him aren't under judgment, but he has come to execute judgment. And he says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So this idea is all over the place in John 5. In John chapter 8, when Jesus is talking to those crowds, he tells those crowds, if you believe in my word and you believe in me, you will never die. So this idea of eternal life through the Son. In John 10, the chapter just before our chapter, the text just before the text we're going into, Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd, and he talks about what the good shepherd does. And he says, the good, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. This is what the good shepherd does. The good shepherd lays down his life so that he can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So resurrection is all over the place in the Gospel of John up to this point. I hope that you see it, this new life through Jesus. Sometimes he's talking about his own resurrection. Sometimes he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, but this idea is all over the place, which brings me to our second big idea. The raising of Lazarus is Jesus' seventh sign. It's an act that establishes Jesus' identity to his audience, and then John establishes that same identity to his audience. So we note that there are two audiences here, right? Jesus' audience as he's preaching these for the first time, and then John's audience, which is us and everyone who's ever read the Gospel of John, Right? So it's presenting Jesus as, and, and, and so it's presenting who Jesus is, the identity of Jesus, and the raising of Lazarus shows that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So the text about Jesus resurrecting Lazarus is then going to move directly into an event, into the events that leads to Jesus' own death and resurrection. Because Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, those who are seeking his life will finally have complete cause to kill him. This is the reason in John's gospel why they ultimately plan to murder Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead and they see the authority and the power that he's gaining. So 
they set out to kill him. So Lazarus' death and resurrection lead ultimately to Jesus' death and resurrection later in the gospel. Kostenberger talks about this in his commentary when he says, Jesus' true identity as the Christ and the Son of God, uh, moreover as the culminating sign of John's gospel, it serves here as the seventh climactic sign and constitutes the final damning piece of evidence against Jesus' opponents. So Jesus' opponents see what Jesus does here. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and, and they are afraid of him. So with that, we've seen what's happened so far in the Gospel of John. We're, we've seen what's going to happen in our chapter. What I want to do is I want to break down the text for you into four scenes, and these are the four scenes that we're going to be looking at today. The first one is John 11, 1 through 16. And in this scene, we're going to see the death of, death of Lazarus for the glory of God, and then the disciples' response. So the death of Lazarus and the disciples' response. The second one is going to be in 17 through 27, the death of Lazarus and Martha's response. So with each of these scenes, what we're going to see is we're going to see a response by somebody. And then in 11, 28 through 37, the death of Lazarus and Mary and those who are mourning's response. And then the final scene, 38 through 44, the resurrection of Lazarus and the defeat of death. I've broken it up into four scenes because as we read narrative, one of the things that we want to be mindful of is how that narrative kind of takes place. So if we were watching a television show or a movie, how would we know where one scene begins and the next, where one scene ends and the next one begins? It's usually like a camera swipe or something like that. The camera fades out. We see a new, a new audience, right? We see, we see new people. We see new characters on the scene, a new location maybe. Well, that's how we read narrative, isn't it? We read narrative by noting, oh, there's a new scene here, right? The camera swiped, so to speak, as we're reading the text. So that's how I've broken up this text. And the first text that we're going to look at is John 1 through 16, which is the death of Lazarus for the glory of God, and then the disciples' response to that. In John 10, right before this, Jesus had been doing the will of the Father and revealing the Father, as we've already said. Jesus also says that his sheep will never perish and that no one will snatch them from him. So you know that that's got to be on his readers' minds as they're reading this. His sheep will never perish and no one will snatch his sheep from him. And then the crowds, they see that Jesus in this text, when he says, I and the Father are one in John 10, 30 and 31, when he says that, they pick up stones and they try to murder him because they say that he's blasphemed, because he's made himself equal with the Father. So Jesus has just said, nobody will ever take my sheep. Right? And then Jesus has just been, uh, there, there's been an attempted murder on Jesus' life for proclaiming the word of God. And then he's left there, and he's, he's, he's gone, he's gone a, a, a few days' journey away. And what has happened is it says, now a certain man was ill, so John 11, 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death, ultimately. right? It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again, the place where they just tried to murder him, remember? 
The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's just fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was uh, taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So here we're introduced to three siblings, right? The first time that we're introduced to them in John's gospel. John expects his readers, however, to know Martha, Mary, and Lazarus from both stories that they would have heard and from the other gospels because John is the last gospel that is written. So he expects his readers to know them. That's why he mentions this is the Mary who anointed Jesus' feet because John's actually going to talk about that anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary in the next chapter. So he expects his audience already knows this but he yet hasn't talked about these events. Jesus notes that Lazarus' illness will not result in death. Ultimately, he is going to die. Obviously, we see that in the text. But he will be raised again from the dead. But the reason, the ultimate like revelation of what's going to happen in this text with Lazarus' death is, is not ultimately the point being his death, but the glory of God is going to be revealed. Jesus, therefore, stays two days longer so that Lazarus will die And Jesus won't be there to heal him. Jesus then begins to go back to Judea, but the disciples are worried because they had just been there and they just tried to murder Jesus, right? So they they weren't too far removed from the time when they were in Judea, Jerusalem area. And now he wants to go back. And Jesus gives probably the only difficult, you know, text or difficult verse in this entire section of text. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Right? we might look at that and say, well, what, is, what does he mean? Are there not 12 hours in the day? This is a similar statement to John 9, 4. But what Jesus is doing here is he's telling his disciples that he still has work to do. Right? Has anybody ever told you like, oh, you know, you should just, you should rest now. You shouldn't do that. And you're like, look how much daylight there is outside. I have so much more time in this day to do work. And that's what Jesus is talking about. There's so much more time. There's so much more work to do. And he does this while alluding to, to the light. And John has used this light language. I wish that I could go into this in more depth, but I would be here until next Sunday if we did. But he uses this light language, right, throughout the gospel uh, to, to talk about how light and life are going to be found in him. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the next, uh, in the next scene of texts. He starts to allude to this light language, right? And his, he's assuring his disciples that if they're with him, they're ultimately safe. Right? And then Jesus then reveals to his disciples that Lazarus has died, fallen asleep. There's confusion. They think he's just taking a nap. But Jesus says, no, he's dead. Right? And Jesus said he's glad that he wasn't there so that the disciples would believe because of what Jesus is about to do for them. Thomas then, and I wish, I wish that they had emoticons or something at times in the Bible. I don't really wish that, right? But, but I wish that we could see kind of, all right, what is the inflection of voice that this person is using as they say this thing? 
right? So because Thomas, he takes the spotlight of, of, of kind of idiocy off of, of Peter for a couple of minutes, right? And he says, hey, let's go and we'll die too, right? We don't, I don't know if he's being sarcastic here or if he's just like, I guess we're going to go and we're going to die as well. But regardless of his inflection of voice, I think that it shows that he, he truly misunderstands the situation. Like the, the audiences and the crowds before him, Thomas, Thomas is confused. He doesn't know all of the things that are happening here. So there are three things I want to note, three things I want to really highlight from this text. First, Lazarus' death is for the glory of God. That should be fairly evident. Second, Jesus is focused on his work that the Father has given to him. That's his concern, right? His concern isn't his own personal safety. He's willing to go back to Judea, to Jerusalem again, even though he knows he's going to die. And the third is that the disciples, like the audiences in John's gospel so far, they're, they're a bit lost, right? They're a bit lost in the sense that they, they, they're not putting all the pieces together about who Jesus is. And we can see this throughout John's gospel. So how does this, how does this bear on our lives? What does this mean for us? Well, first, God's glory is Jesus' primary concern. And it should be ours also, shouldn't it? God's glory is Jesus' primary concern, and God's glory should be our primary concern as well, shouldn't it? Think about this, this new year, and as we're thinking about what we're going to do this year and your New Year's resolution, you don't have to say it out loud. I don't want to condemn you, right? But was your New Year's resolution you-focused, or was it God-focused? Are you concerned about, man, the most important thing to me is shedding that excess 20, 30, 40 pounds, Right? Is that, is that your biggest concern? Is that the thing that will make you happy and give you satisfaction this year? Right? Is your New Year's concern ultimately and fully and finally, man, me and my spouse, we will, we will get along, my wife and my husband and I, right? We will, we will, finally, we will finally get along this year. Not a, not a, neither of those is a bad New Year's resolution. Don't get, don't get me wrong. But when you're thinking about the things that you need to do this year, or as we're thinking about New Year's resolutions, the things we need to, we need to fix, it really shows us the conditions of our heart, doesn't it? It shows us how me, I, focused we are. And how not God-focused we are. Jesus' primary concern here is the glory of God. Amend your New Year's resolution. So it can still be to lose those 20 pounds, but say, I want to lose those 20 pounds to the glory of God because this is the glorious body He has given me here and now. God help me, right? My health is failing. I have not been a good steward of what you have given me. Let me glorify you in all things. You can still have, I mean, we just need to reorient our thinking back to the glory of God. We need to reorient our thinking to have the mind of Christ like he has here. The second thing that we see is that we need to pay attention to the word of Christ and seek to know him. The disciples walked and witnessed with Jesus for years, right? They saw him perform signs. They heard his teaching. They lived with him. And they still have a misunderstanding. We need to trust in, to dwell on, to meditate on the word of Christ, the word of God. We need to be people who are in the word and of the word. We need to be people who deeply, deeply and fiercely know our God. That is something that every Christian should be able to say, I know my God well, because he has revealed himself to me. We also, we see that we worship Christ and believe that he has what he has revealed about himself. Sometimes, right, 
as it does with the disciples here. We see how Christ has revealed himself to us, right? and it's going to make us a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? The disciples are uncomfortable. Thomas is just like, we're going to die, right? It's uncomfortable to affirm and declare who God is, and it should make us uncomfortable because we are not God. We are other than God. We are, we are people who are sinners in desperate need of God. That is why when we are confronted with this holy God and we see when people who are confronted with this holy God throughout Scripture, whether it be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the crowds, right? When they see a manifestation of the glory of God, they don't fist bump, right? They hit the dirt. They hit the dirt. It makes us uncomfortable, right? When God tells us what to do, not only because we think that we're autonomous beings and no one else has bearing on our life, but it makes us uncomfortable because he is so other than we are. But he has revealed himself and made himself known to us. And we should expect that to be a little bit uncomfortable when our maker, when the creator encounters his creation. So they move from this scene with Jesus telling the disciples that Lazarus is dead and that this is done to reveal the glory of God to a scene where Lazarus is going to die, right? So, so, so where we see Lazarus' death, and then Martha's response to Jesus. So Jesus is going to go back towards Jerusalem, towards Judea. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So he'd been traveling for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother, Lazarus, who had just died. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask from the thought from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Jesus has just traveled for four days. He knew that Lazarus had died, right? And Martha, Lazarus' sister, comes out to meet him. As Martha greets Jesus, right, she's contrasted with her sister Mary, as they are in other narratives, right, Martha and Mary, right, And and, and she shows confidence, right, that he could save her brother and that he could have saved her brother if he had only been there, right? And then Jesus asks her some questions. There's a, there's a little bit of, of vaguity in them. But, but Martha seems to have some misunderstanding because she thinks that when Jesus asks her, do you believe that, that I can raise the dead? She says, oh, yes, I believe that. And, and you're going to raise my brother on that last day, right? on, on the day of resurrection. And then Jesus responds to her with like kind of one of these mic-dropping I am statements that he's made throughout the Gospels. I am is the name of, of, of God in the Old Testament. It's his covenantal name, Yahweh, revealed through Moses in Exodus chapters 3 and 6, 3 in particular. Right? So when Jesus says this I am statement, he is claiming that he is the sovereign Lord of all of history. This is no little claim. If anyone has ever said to you, Jesus never really claimed to be God. 
He could not say anything more clear than I am. That's why every time he says I am, they pick up stones and they try to murder him, right? It's not like he's just saying, oh yeah, I exist, right? And then they're like, I don't like that, right? I'm going to pick up a stone and I'm going to try to... No, no, he's claiming to be the sovereign Lord of all of history, the creator of everything and the covenantal God of his people. And he's made these statements throughout John's gospel and he's going to continue to make them after this. So in John 6.35, he said, I am the bread of life. In John 8 and 9, he talks about how he's the light of the world. In John 10, he says he's the gate and he's the door. And then he says, I am the good shepherd, right? And people have life through him. In 11.25, in our text today, he's the resurrection and the life. And then in John 14.6, we're pretty familiar with this text. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but or except through me. And then in John 15, he talks about how he is the true vine, and that we are his branches. Now, in this text, we see both, both light from the previous scene and life are combined in this narrative. John is linking these ideas back to, to the very beginning of his gospel where he talks about how Jesus in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Right? So Jesus is God. Jesus made everything. And Jesus came into this world to bring light and life is what he's going to say in John 1, 4-5. That Jesus is the light and the life of this world. So he's bringing all of these conceptions, all of these ideas from the beginning of his gospel, and all of these ideas that have been sprinkled up to this point back to a head here in John chapter 11. Jesus then presses Martha for a response on whether she believes that those who believe in him will never die. Her brother is dead in a tomb. Right? And Jesus has the audacity to ask her, so, Martha, your, your brother's dead. Do you believe that those who trust in me will never die? Think of the gravity of this question. We can easily skip over that. This is a tough question. Right? We've all lost somebody. We've all lost people in our lives. I, I, I take that to probably be a true thing about the fallen and the, condi- the condition of the fallen and broken world that we live in. I don't make light of that circumstance. I've lost people in my life. I can imagine how difficult this question would be as if Jesus were to come up to me and say, do you believe that those who trust in me will never die? As your child is in in the tomb. Or as your mom and dad or brother or sister are laying dead in the coffin. And that's the situation that Martha finds herself in. And her response is beautifully surprising. Martha shows that she understands who Jesus is better than the disciples do at this point and better than the crowds and certainly better than the religious leaders. And what does she say? I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She knows without a doubt who this one is. And it is a beautiful and wonderful confession. So, John reveals to his readers that they need what they need to know about Jesus here in this text. This is kind of the central point of the text, right? He's going he's gonna to perform a sign in, in the next scenes to confirm what he's just said here. But this is the central point of the text, that he is the resurrection and the life, and that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. This is the big point of the text, and Martha nails it on the head, doesn't she? When you think of Jesus, what do you think about? Do you think of these things? Do you think that he's the light and the life of this world? Do you think that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you think that those who believe in him will never die? 
Do you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world? Or maybe I should ask you, do you think that when non-believers see Christians, that they know that that's what Christians believe? Do you think that when non-believers, when people of the world see Christ, or see us Christians who represent him, do you think that we are people that they think are characterized by life and light? I don't know. At times I think that they do, certainly. And at times I think we fail our God miserably. There's grace, but we need to recapture this marvelous picture that Martha proclaims here. We need to recapture that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Christ who is coming into this world, that He is the light and life of this world. And we need to meditate on that, and we need to dwell on that. We need to be, stop being so self-reflective and being more reflective and understanding of who God is so that we can understand who we are more properly. Martha's response is striking, and Martha's response should be our response. She is anxious to see Christ and believes in him through faith that he can accomplish what is humanly, what is this worldly, seemingly impossible. But we know that with With man, with humans, these things are impossible, aren't they? But with God, all things are possible. Jesus talks about that when he's talking to the rich young man. Well, when he's talking to the rich young man and then his disciples. So after this beautiful, wonderful confession about who Jesus is, the third scene unveils in 28 through 37. And here we're going to see the death of Lazarus, and then Mary, and then those who are mourning's response. So when she had said this, when Martha had made her response, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary, uh, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now... When Mary had come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And she said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man, uh, just a couple chapters ago, also have kept this man from dying? So Martha calls to Mary, and when she hears that Jesus is there, she goes to meet him, like her sister. When the crowd sees Mary leave, they go with her, thinking she's going to the tomb. Mary's response to Jesus is, is pretty similar to Martha's response, isn't it? Right? She sees who Jesus is, she sees, she sees that Jesus is there, and she says, Teacher, Master, if you'd only been here, right, my brother wouldn't have died. And we know that Jesus waited, he tarried on purpose so that her brother would die. Right? But there's a difference between Martha's response and Mary's response. Right? It's, it's missing the statement of trust and faith. 
Right? That, that statement that she believes that, that he is going to raise the dead, that statement that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I think that that's, that that's striking, that it's purposeful. Jesus is then moved and troubled at the great mourning over Lazarus' death, right? because of how these people loved him. Right? It moves him to the point when he sees their weeping, he himself weeps. Jesus then asks where the tomb is, and the crowd notices how much Jesus loved him and how much Jesus loves them. The response of the crowd is the same as Mary's response. If this guy had only been here, he can, he can you know, cure blindness. He healed lame men. right? He healed a sick girl on the edge of death. If he had just been here, he wouldn't have died. So they're almost like blaming Jesus. If you would have gotten here sooner, the mourners understand that Jesus could have saved him while this man was still alive, but seem to not grasp the totality of who Jesus is. This is going to be confirmed by Jesus' prayer in the next scene. But when we look at this scene, we see that we should worship, that we do worship a God who is able to understand us. This is no small thing. Even when we cannot perceive the totality of the situation that we are in, even when we cannot perceive the totality of who we are, we have a God who deeply, deeply loves us, who's deeply concerned with us, and who deeply cares for us. This is the God that we worship. And this is awesome. This is marvelous, isn't it? We do not worship an indifferent God who is uncaring and cold. We worship a God who loves us, who is to the point of, well, in this text, Jesus is weeping because of his love and his compassion. Maybe even more striking than this is that we have a God who knows us perfectly and still loves us. Right? That's striking, isn't it? Can you imagine your whole life unveiled or revealed and still loving that person? Or that person still loving you? And yet God knows us totally, finally, and fully and still sets his love and affection on us. What a wonderfully beautiful thing. We also see from Jesus' reaction and the reaction of the crowds that death is not the way that it is supposed to be. We were not created to die. Death is an enemy. Death is a foe. We sing a song on occasion where it talks about, oh, death, where is your sting? And it is a beautiful song. Death is not the way this world is supposed to be. And the new heavens and the new earth, we see that God is going to wipe away every tear from our eye and that death will be no more. We live, a fall, we live in a fallen and broken world that is infested with death, which is the result of sin and which results in more sin. This has invaded every area of our lives and of the world that we live in. And we have to understand very keenly that Jesus is the solution to the problem of sin and death. There is no other solution. He and he alone is the solution to the problem of sin and death. He is the one who is going to defeat death. That's exactly what he does in the next scene. So in this fourth scene, in 11, 38 through 44, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's the resurrection of Lazarus and then the defeat of death. Then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor, 
for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound in linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus was still moved in this scene, right? Uh, For his love for Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and the crowds. He commands the the, the people to take away the stone from Lazarus' tomb, but there's a little bit of hesitation on Martha's part, right? She's like, he's going to smell really bad. It's been four days, right? This is not going to be a pretty scene, right? So Jesus tells her, he says, look, didn't I tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God manifested? I want to make a, a quick little note. Often when you're, when you're hearing this text preached or you're reading something about this text, uh, you'll hear something about later Jewish sources talk about how when the soul leaves the body, it hovers over the body for four days. Um, uh, and so by this time, uh, Jesus would not have been able to, or for three days and then on the fourth it departs, by this time Jesus wouldn't have been able to resurrect Lazarus from their account. So he truly does have victory over death. That's not something in John's Gospel's hearers' minds. That's something that in in later tradition that is non-biblical and really doesn't have any precedent in the biblical text is coming about. His audience wouldn't have understood that. That's not a theological truth that we can find anywhere in Scripture. Uh, It makes for a neat little anecdotal story. But, But the point of this text is that Lazarus is dead, right? And he's really, really, really dead. He's, he's so dead that it calls him dead multiple times in the text. So notice how Martha is described. She's not Martha, the sister of Lazarus. She's Martha, the sister of the dead man, right? Talks, Lazarus has been dead for four days, right? And then it, it again mentions that he was dead, right? When it says, the man who had died came out. He is as dead as dead can be. There's no doubt about it. That's the point of this text. Jesus draws Martha's attention back to the focus of the glory of God with a question, right? right? Don't you know you'll see the, the glory of God revealed? And the mourners obey Jesus. They remove the stone. Then Jesus prays and asks God to answer his prayer so that the people will see and that they will know who he is, that he is the one who is sent by the Father, that he is one who has the authority of the Father. That's the point of this text, so that they will know who he is. Jesus then calls Lazarus out of the tomb, and the dead man, still bound in funeral cloths, obeys the voice of his creator and arises from the tomb. Right? Remember that John 5 text? When they hear my voice, they will rise from the dead. It's happened. The unthinkable has happened. Who is this one who has power over death? Again, as I've said, death is not how it is supposed to be, and we worship one who swallows up death with his death on the cross. There, this is the hope of the gospel, my friends, right? This is our hope. Not that we deserve eternal life, but that, we have, but that eternal life has been given to us through Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. We worship a God who merely speaks 
and the dead come to life. A reversal of the fall in Genesis 3. A reversal of the curses of Genesis chapter 3. A reversal of the misfortunes of history. Both physical and spiritual death have plagued all of the created order since Genesis 3, since the fall of humanity. And here we see that one who has come to display the glory of God and overturn the separation of God that we see and that we live in. We look forward to Christ's second coming when what has begun here with his advent and with his perfect life and with his death on the cross and with his resurrection from the dead and with his intercession on our behalf right now, we look forward to what has begun will be finally and fully completed and consummated at his return. Paul reflects on what this means in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For as by a man came death, he's talking about Adam there, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. All things are under the subjugation and authority of Jesus. And that is the story that has captured and captivated the world. Because it is the true story of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. He has come to destroy and defeat death. So as we begin to close, John talks about what he has tried to accomplish here and elsewhere in his gospel by saying this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. It didn't write everything. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Martha's confession. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus has revealed that he is the sovereign God over death. That he is the Christ, the Son of God, who reveals the Father's glory. When God manifests his glory, it is our duty, it is our privilege to respond to him in faith and obedience. The crowds have responded in disbelief and rebellion. Before this, they tried to murder Jesus as he's revealed who he is. Right? We've seen in the responses in this narrative, Martha, this beautiful confession. Mary and the mourners, a little bit confused. The disciples, Thomas, also confused. Maybe we're going to die as well. Right? What is shocking is that there is about to be a response in the next section of the gospel. There's about to be a response. Because Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the response of his audience is, murder him. The response of the people, of of Jesus having a power over death and bringing Lazarus back to life is that they're going to kill him. The religious leaders are going to make sure of that. But that's not our text. That's the next text. This week we marvel at who Christ is. His awesome, life-giving power. He is the Christ, the Son of God, who reveals the Father. And we respond with lives that are characterized by love and by life. 
lives that are lived for the glory of God. Let's pray.